Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, welcome. And uh, we are going to dive right into Matthew here pretty soon. I think Spencer may have mentioned, though I wasn't here, uh, but today is uh, Marathon Sunday. You guys probably know a lot of runners from our church. I think we have, uh, Spence, did you mention this or not? I don't know how much I should say. Did he mention that? Several that are running, uh, that, um, all of whom, some of whom, are running for Team World Vision to raise uh, clean water, money for clean water in, in Africa. So really excited about that. But a lot of people are, are there, so it's great. Uh, maybe some of you are even uh, cheering for them, I don't know, this morning or some are probably now doing that who are here for service too. So that's great. Uh, but it reminded me of one story. This relates to nothing that I'm going to say this morning, but one marathon story I like to say, uh, I like to share every once in a while. My brother-in-law, uh, Kors, a pastor up at our sending church, Hope, uh, ran a marathon once and he wore a jersey uh, that just says uh, uh, Core, his name, on front. And I think it was his first marathon, but just starting off by the uh, Metrodome, right? Start by the dome. And I think it was a quarter mile in or so, you know, people are there cheering and you can see on a little lawn chair. And this guy, he had no idea who he was, but this guy sitting there just sees, you know, sees the core and just says, do it, core. Do it now. <laughs> just like, kind of like in the early, early, early quarter mile, you're not really running that far. She's kind of walking by this guy and like, who is that? It's on his mind the whole time. But anyway, I thought of that just because I thought, you know, here we go. It's just... Let's do this, you know. It's time to preach. But anyway, whatever. Um, so we're, we're in Matthew right now. And uh, in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, if you're newer to the Bible, um, we just to catch you up to speed a little bit, or if you're brand new today to this series, so uh, we're pretty much right in the middle of the Gospel. And we're calling, we're sub- subtitling the series, this mini-series within the greater series, Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. And so a lot of what Christ is doing here, he's revealing a lot about himself, uh, the nature of of sin and redemption. He's building the story to the cross. Uh, it's a big piece to understanding the Bible that we have to get is that everything is about the cross. So when you read a passage in the earlier parts of the gospel accounts like this, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament that there are four gospel accounts that tell the theological history of Christ's birth and his ministry and his death and resurrection especially. Uh, when you read these sections of scripture, so after the cross or before, we've got to read it as though it's either building to or fallout from the cross. Everything's about that. Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem in the Gospels. It's very clear that that's his mission. He's not coming to the world just to teach or speak in parables or heal people. That's a piece to it, but really all those things are catering to him going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. It's ultimately what the Old Testament's about. It's ultimately what the early parts of the Gospel accounts are here that we're in right now. And it's ultimately what the rest of the New Testament's about as well. It's all about the cross, all about God being great and sinners being separated from him and God remedying that issue through the means of his son, and more specifically, through what his son ultimately did in dying on a cross for our sins. So if we get that, we really get the whole of the Bible. And we understand all of Scripture, and then the, the, the calling then, or the encouragement for the Christian reader then, for any reader of the Scriptures, is to see it in, in that light. To basically use that as a lens to understand the sometimes hidden texts of the Scriptures, the difficult readings sometimes of the Scriptures through that lens. So we've been doing that. We've been seeing, learning a lot about Christ here and I think in these recent passages, seeing especially how confronting uh, to the world he is. He confronts the world, corrects a lot of misperceptions about him. And so there was a lot of misperception about who the Messiah would be in the first century. And there is still today as well, which I think is really cool because we can align ourselves with these people in the, right in the story here, right in the gospel accounts that misunderstood who Christ was going to be, what he's going to be all about. Uh, reading our Bibles poorly. A lot of the Jews in the first century, for example, thought he was going to be more of a political Messiah zealous to overthrow Roman rule in the land, but Jesus makes it clear, I'm here to overthrow a greater enemy. Sin and death. The fact that you're separated from the Father in heaven, from your creator. You're cast out. You've been cast out of the Garden of Eden for centuries and millennia. And I'm here to bring to restore that relationship and, and the means by which, again, is the cross and the empty tomb. So he's doing a lot of that, but when he talks in that manner, he gets very explicit about himself and, and very... He says earlier in the gospel accounts, he says, the way is narrow that leads to life. The gate is narrow that leads to life, and few find it. And partly what he means by that is that he's the only way. The the gate's not wide because there's not many saviors. People don't just kind of back into the kingdom. You have to see Christ in this more frontal way. Like, he he is the gate, and and his mission is the only way. The cross is it. And so the the way is narrow in that sense. And so the demands of the kingdom, the, the... the encouragement, the invitation to see him as the only way 
gets very clear. And so a lot of what he has to say then is either just that. It's very exclusivistic or, or demanding. Uh, Tim Keller says this, Jesus wasn't moderate in anything. He was radically gentle and radically truth-loving at the same time. The gospel is not a kind of middle-of-the-road, lukewarm thing. So, for example, then, last week, Spencer preached on the sign of Jonah. I mean, last week, Jesus basically said, when the Pharisees and others were demanding a sign from Jesus that they might know truly who he was, Jesus basically responds by saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks and demands for a sign. But I will give you one sign. I will give you the sign of Jonah. And so what he's saying there in that is in the Old Testament when Jonah, the prophet, was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, he's saying the sign you're going to get about who I am and why I'm really here is the sign of me like that, but now being in the heart of the earth or in a tomb three days and three nights. That's the sign from God that we're going to get. So we understand God then on his terms, not ours. We don't climb our way to him. We don't reason our way to him. We don't figure him out. He says, I'm going to reveal myself on my terms and the, the main way Though at times you can get a glimpse of me from creation or from relationships or from human reason, but the, the far and away, the way you know he, about me and who I am and know salvation is the sign of Jonah or the sign ultimately of the cross. I'm going to die on a cross for sins and be in a tomb for three days and three nights. That's how you know the character of God. That's how you know he loves you. That's how you know that God is coming to the world to actually die in your place. I mean, think about how much we can't get this from creation, right? No one figured this out. No one reasons their way to that conclusion. God just does it in the world, and he writes it down. He just does it in history. It's preserved, and we are drawn to that, you know, drawn to that light out of the darkness, and we see God then for who he really is, and we're saved through that knowledge. So that's very exclusivistic. But it also gets very demanding, Christ does, and some of the things he has to say. A couple weeks ago, we read that Jesus says, if we're not with him, we're actually against him. So in other words, you, you can't be neutral with Jesus. There is no third position. Like, there's not for Christ or antagonistic towards him, against him, and then a neutral position where we just don't know yet. That might be functionally where we are. We might feel like we're there, and we might be there to a degree, but Jesus says those latter two camps are really one and the same. To be for him is to be for him, but just not to even be with him or not to even be aware of him, that's actually to take up arms against God and, and to be against him. So that's what he's remedying in the world. We're all born into taking up arms against God, to being not just sort of a lost, wandering soul, but actually a rebel, an enemy of the creator. And God, though, praise be to God, he is a master of taking an enemy and making him a friend and a loved one. If that wasn't the case, we'd all be lost forever, forever. But because he does that, because he wants to do that out of love for us, we have hope, 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 hope. And so we talk about hope every week, and we build, the church is built on hope, that we have what God has done in the world as the foundation, and we are built up, like the Bible says, as a house on top of that foundation. But what God does, how God reveals himself, the sign of Jonah, the sign of the cross, you know, taking enemies and making them friends, going to the uttermost to die for us. That's the foundation. Without that, everything comes uh, crumbling down. But we had that teaching a couple weeks ago, and a, a few weeks before that, I want to read this one because it ties into today's passage really well. He talked about family. More than that, but in one section in this passage in chapter 10, he really got specific, and he said this exclusivistic and demanding thing when he talked about the kingdom of God and what it means to really be with Christ and, and to be saved. He said in 1037, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So very clearly just saying, coming right out and saying, I'm more important than your family. Family's good. It's God-given. It's God-created. But I actually take, should take precedence and priority over that, whether it be marriage or love for your kids or extended family, even a very deep, meaningful friendship. That's, that's apart from Christ, and you know, all of them are, of course, except our friendship with the Creator through Christ. But, so all those should, are good and should be received as a gift of God and, cont- and obviously have their place in our life. But Jesus is saying, I take priority. Not just in a factual sense, but this is to be ca- the, the case in a, in a demonstrated sense in our lives. So the question is, is this true? And that's, that's my first encouragement for you guys. to Read the rest of this passage. I've been praying this for myself and for you guys all week. That as we are confronted with this teaching, we get a lot of encouragement here, seeing God for who he is as, as an adopter, as a lover of our souls, as our true family. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but also some challenge that this is, 
This is offensive to a degree, and it, and it costs us something. It's hard to hear that the, our most important relationships on this earth that might have formed us the most are a distant second to our relationship with our true family member, our true brother, our true father, our creator, Jesus Christ. So that's what he's getting at here back in, in chapter 10, acknowledging that this is, this is true. This is the nature of, of salvation, the salvific process for people when they come to me. But also, I think, acknowledging, at least in the white space, that that just isn't functionally true for a lot of us. We don't live that way, right? I mean, a lot of us can think probably just right now, or maybe even right now, today. It's not true. Jesus is important to me, but my family defines me a lot more. And they, they're more the son of my solar system than Jesus, just on a day-to-day basis. They give me more joy. They, they're more in my calendar. They're just whatever it is, uh, that they are more important and more of my identifier to me. So the good news to that, that's bad news, good news to that is Jesus dies for all sin, including the worship of family. And we all do that. The worship, idolatry is not always worshiping bad things. It's taking good God-given things and making them divine and worshiping them. And family is one of those things. So that, that can easily be done. And we all, all of us are idolaters. Christ dies for all forms, including family worship. But then as we come to him, there's this call to live as though that's actually true. So we're saved from it, but then we also are called to repent, which means turn from the old into the new and and, and live as though we've been called to something, even though it's good, something even better. Uh, the God of the universe dying in our place <clears throat> and follow, just being with him forever. So that just happens. We'll talk a lot more about the relationship between those two things here as, as, we, uh, as we go on. So not the forsaking of family, but to put Jesus back on that throne and how that all works. The tension there uh, in a minute. Well, let's read today's passage. Uh, so Matthew 10, 37 builds into today thematically. Matthew 12, 46 to 50 is uh, today's passage. Remember, he's been confronting the world, uh, teaching things that are very difficult to hear, but very encouraging at the same time. Many people are turned away by these types of teachings and never follow him again. And many of them actually seek to kill him because of some of the things that he said, just right in context here. And others are being drawn to him and are, are being saved as they're, being, as they're following him to the cross where the, the ultimate form of his love for us will be expressed. Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. All right. Two spins on this I want to focus on today, give you guys an idea of where we're headed. I think there's two main aspects of this passage that require uh, pretty serious unpacking and highlighting. The first is Jesus redefines family around himself as though he's the core. That's the first thing that happens here, back in Matthew 10 as well and elsewhere in the New Testament. So we'll look at that thematically as well here, not just from Matthew 12, but in a thematic sense. Step back a bit, get the, the bigger picture, but mostly from Matthew 12. The second thing is this idea of Jesus welcoming all who do the will of the Father. So we'll talk about that. What is that? What does that mean? It's a pretty nebulous phrase and term, but if you, if you use the Bible to define it, it gets pretty clear. What does it mean to do the will of the Father? If you want to be in the family of God and be saved, and this is the, the requirement, what, what does that mean? So really we're going to move from vague to specific, or at least broad to specific here. Jesus is going to talk about family, spiritual family in general terms, and then talk more about how do we really get into that family with this will of the Father idea uh, a little bit later? Though I'll mention that too as we go in this first section as well. So let's start with the first part. Uh, Jesus redefines family around himself. Verses 48 and 49 again. But he replied to the man, so again, the context here, he's in a house, he's teaching, disciples are before him. A man comes in and says, hey, your, your family's here, Mary, your brothers, they want to talk to you. And Jesus replies to that messenger, that man who came in and, and said that that's going on. He says, who are, my father, who are my mother and my brothers? And he stretched out his hand. So picture this, which stretching out the hand is a sign of blessing in the Old Testament. A lot of times in a family manner. Like a lot of times fathers would do this uh, to a son and, and bless them on their deathbed. The father being on the, death, on the deathbed. Blessing the son before he dies. And we have those blessings, a lot of those blessings recorded in Scripture. So here he's kind of doing that as well in a family sense. He's blessing. He's stretching out his hand and he's saying, here are my mother and my brothers. So he's defining things differently now. His mother and brothers, physical ones, his nuclear family, essentially, 
They're outside, and they're asking to speak to me, saying, here, here, messenger, and here, all of you who are before me, you are my mother, and you are my brothers, all of you who do the will of the Father. So a quick disclaimer on this, to be very clear, and you got to hear this throughout the whole, uh, the whole sermon today and the whole passage, or we're just going to miss the point. It's super easy to go to, to too many extremes or two extremes on both sides. Jesus is not saying today or anywhere else that family is not important. He's not saying don't love them. He's not saying don't spend time with them, don't hang out anymore with them. But rather, he's upplaying himself. He's downplaying family. He's upplaying himself as the ultimate brother to be with and rest with. So you've got to have that in mind. Or some of the things that I say today or that you read will sound too cold. I don't think Jesus is being cold here to his mother, Mary, and to his brothers outside. He loves them. We know he loves them. We see his love expressed in different passages elsewhere in the gospel. So he's not being mean here. He's, just, he's not downplaying that. He's just rather upplaying and saying the ultimate form of family, this is family, but the ultimate form is me and God and your relationship with, with me and, by extension, other people who are with me, so the church. He doesn't use the word church here, but that's implied, and we'll talk more about that here in a minute. So make sure that disclaimer is heard. Both are good, but they're not co-equals. Uh, it should be more like this. So physical family, spiritual family uh, are not like this. Just do that and put Jesus on top. He's the more important one, the bottom one pointing to, pointing to him. But going back to 48 and 49 here, in, in context, uh, contextually, being a, a family, the idea of family, the reality of family was an even bigger deal identity-wise uh, in, in the first century than it is today, especially in Western culture. So it's important to step back a bit and pause and feel the weight of the moment because what Jesus is doing here is absolutely huge. It's, it redefines things in a lot, or clarifies things at least theologically in the way he's teaching. It's epoch shifting. Picture being there with Christ in the house and hearing him say this to you. I mean, you, you not being his, his physical family and then being outside wanting to talk to him and then him stretching his hand out over you and saying, you're my family. Look how that make you feel. You're really encouraged, right? And as though, what does that mean? Maybe some questions, but also, I have, I have status and an extreme value before Jesus, as if I were part of his family. He's actually saying I am. His mother and brothers are actually not physical family, but there's some spiritual, special component here that I'm, that I'm sharing in. Then picture yourselves outside the house as Mary and, and his brothers, what they would be feeling, right? Probably some serious offense to that, or again, more questions. What does that mean? He's saying, they, they, we don't know if she heard or they heard what was going on, but let's just assume they did. Uh, it would be quite offensive and a quite question-raising for them to hear that I, I'm not as much the mother and the brothers anymore as I thought. And what does that mean about, mean about family? So Jesus then, this is classic Jesus, by the way, taking an experience like this or a situation and saying something extremely encouraging and extremely offensive at the same time. You know, both. There you go. You know, do, you know just kind of blend it all up and, and drink it. And that's why you get a lot of Christ's teaching. Super offensive, epoch-shifting stuff, paradigm-shifting stuff, and the most encouraging thing you could ever hear in your life at the exact same time. The, again, this is, this is going back to the Tim Keller quote. It's not a luke, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a lukewarm, middle-of-the-road. Christ does not leave it to us to take a, a very middle, neutral, safe road with him. It's just either radically truth-speaking, radically gentle, this is the stuff he teaches. He doesn't leave it to us, which I love. He doesn't leave it to us to grope around the darkness for what exactly is he all about again and what does it mean to... He's just very, very clear. And he calls us from something in a very, very clear uh, manner. And it, the, the demands of the kingdom are, are very high in a related sense as, as well. So, but picture that. Offense and, and great encouragement. Big thing we have to see here then is Jesus did not here or elsewhere come into the world just to tell us how to have better physical, familial relationships. We're going to see Jesus teach a lot on that. Yes, he values marriage very highly. That's clear. Yes, he values family, uh, the family structure very highly as well and embodies a type of sacrificial love that we're called to bring into our families. Families are good things, like I said before. But what he does more is stuff like this. He redefines family around himself. See the big difference there? It's one thing to say, Jesus walked into the world and said, here's how to be a better, a better husband or have a better, more healthy family. It's a whole other thing to say, I'm the ultimate reason why family exists. And I am your true family. I'm bringing spiritual family into the world on the highest level it's ever been. And it's more important than, than what's over there. 
See how different that is? I mean, this is, this is again, one of those places in, in the Scriptures, we've seen a lot of this in Matthew already, that we have to just look at and put our finger on and say, only the Son of God can say stuff like this, right? I mean, either this guy is, to say, I'm the ultimate reason family exists. You know, to do the will of the Father in heaven is to be, to, these are my mother and my brothers, and to redefine family around yourself. Either he's a narcissistic lunatic, or he's the Son of God who has the authority to say stuff like this and actually, and actually be truthful about it, right? I mean, it gets very clear, actually much more clear elsewhere. This is one of those places we see this pattern in the Gospels where they say this is not, he's not just a good guy teaching about how to have little happy families and to be good people. He's actually reorienting everything around himself and saying it's all about me now. See how different that is. So we have to not approach these things with our, you know, kind of presuppositional baggage sometimes as though Jesus was saying one thing when, when he wasn't. He's actually acknowledging family but saying, you know, I'm using that to point people back, back here to me. He's the Son of God, not a moral teacher. He's Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who's bringing family on a spiritual level into the world, uh, not, a, not a moralist or a guru. All right. So if that's the case then, uh, we talk about these a lot. If you're newer to the scriptures, I really encourage you in this uh, to read the Bible this way. Uh, the Bible actually uses these terms elsewhere. So as we use the Bible to read itself, this is where uh, we, we derive this uh, interpretational approach to these matters. Uh, but if, all, if it's all the case, then marriage and parenthood and things like just family relationships in general are a shadow of a greater reality. So the thing I want to encourage you with is seeing the Bible is full of shadows uh, that are cast by Christ, in, especially back into the Old Testament, but Christ in the cross being that ultimate reality. So in other words, marriage, a man's love for his wife, is a picture, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, of Christ's love for the church. It actually says that's why it exists. This isn't a random connection that the Apostle Paul made later in history that, oh, they're kind of similar. I'm going to write about that. No, he actually says this is why marriage exists to glorify God by demonstrating Christ's love for his bride, which is the church. So we know that, and Christ is going to talk very highly of marriage here later in chapter 19 in Matthew, so we know that he speaks very highly of it, but he can also say later in the Gospels that there will be no marriage in heaven. So it's a good snapshot right there of the purpose of marriage. Very high, high purpose and spoken very highly of it. It can tell us a lot about God's love for his people when a man is loving his wife in a sacrificial manner like Ephesians 5 says, but to also say that there will be no marriage in heaven is to say that it's not an ultimate reality, marriage. It's not meant to last forever. It's only temporal. And it's meant to tell us something about God's marriage to his people. It's a shat- and This is the reality. This is the shadow. Don't mix them up. It's the same with family, uh, family relationships in general. Uh, parenthood and, and a father's or a mother's love for his or her child, is, is a demonstration and a picture of God's fatherly love, biblical term, for his kids, us. The Bible uses family language all over the place. And so when we, when we see these things happen in the world, they're structures, they're pictures, they're, they're demonstrations of his love for, for his people on that specific or, or broad level. But again, the family is just the shadow of the ultimate family, God's love for, for us. And I think Jesus makes that clear here in Matthew 12 as well. Families also exist for a very Jesus-centered reason. Shadows are great in as much as they point to the reality. It's casting them on the ground, but when they replace the reality, uh, huge problems rise. So, in other words, if, if the, a picture of the Grand Canyon was more important to me than the Grand Canyon, it'd just be messed up, right? There's something seriously wrong with that. You'd say, no, I need to correct you. You'd never say, oh, that's okay. You'd say, no, this is a picture of something much, 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 much better. All right? Just keep the picture fine, but go to the Grand Canyon. So it's the same way with marriage and family. If we value them more than the ultimate reality of those things, we're basically doing that. We're clinging to a, a dull, old picture of the Grand Canyon when the Grand Canyon actually exists out there. So if marriage and family are created by God for that purpose, but when Jesus talks in these terms, he just helps us realize that's right. As good and God-given as they are, Jesus is better. He's more important. The cross is more significant. It's more worthy of our time and our energy and our worship. Don't flip them. Don't even blend them. Don't hold them side to side. Keep the reality always above, always above the shadow. Ultimate family has to do with him, period. 
So there are two responses to this then, I think, this first segment of Christ redefining, speaking in these terms and redefining family. Just like I said before, picture yourself outside the house like Mary and Jesus' brothers and picture yourself inside the house as well like Jesus' disciples, getting simultaneously great encouragement about the nature of the gospel and what he does for us on the cross and also some great challenge and call to life transformation, some offense being outside the house as well. And those are the two responses. So the first one, just to unpack that a little bit, is encouragement. Some of you, uh, to hear about God in these terms is uh, maybe brand new, uh, but wherever you are with your background, you know, some of you had terrible, have terrible parents or currently very unloving spouse. And marriage is super, super difficult. None is perfect. But some of you have had both those or one of those. And what you need to hear today in light of a passage like this and Jesus speaking like this, like this in this manner, you need to hear Jesus is your true family. Jesus is your true husband. Jesus is your true friend. Jesus is your true brother and better brother. He's not like your current circumstance, period. Got to hear that. This is what God wants you to hear today. What you're experiencing is not even really a shadow because it doesn't really resemble his fatherly love, his husband-like love uh, for you. So you got to hear that. So, but some of you have had great parents and currently loving spouses. So the message for you is Jesus is like them. He's a sh- uh, they are, your experience, are shadows of Christ. So Jesus is like them, but better. You know, that's, that's by God's grace, part of my story. Is I had a great family, dad and, a dad and mom who loved me and sacrificed for me, and a sister that loved me well. And in my dad and mom's case, sacrificed a lot. They put me, put me before work a lot, my sister. And I saw that all the way throughout my childhood. So later when I heard about a God who did not consider himself, you know, basically his life, he basically condem- condem- condescended himself and became a human being and lowered himself and put me first. It, it clicked. It made more sense. And I, I, I basically said, I've seen that before, uh, just in a lesser sense. And, and so hearing about God as Father, all of that, you know, was able to, to click. But even to today, some of you have had that background too and today have that. And if that's the case, then God is like your father or he's like your mother. He's like that love that you, that you saw earlier in your life, but much, 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 much higher. That's how they're a shadow of, of that reality. Whatever your background, though, uh, Galatians 4, let me read this from a different part of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia. Chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So people ask you what happened on the cross, or if you're wondering that today, this is one of the things right here. You were adopted as a child of God. You were adopted as a son. You have heirship now, the Bible says. You have inheritance in him. In other words, God is not your employer. Don't live as though that's the case. He hasn't hired you to do something. He's not going to have some kind of staff review every week or at the the end of history saying, how'd you do? And kind of check off some boxes. He says, I'm your father, not your boss. I've loved you and I've brought you into my family. You can't lose that. Like a son or daughter can't lose the love of a loving father and mother. That's that's the nature of of your salvation now, your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's familial. It's not a job. And we all, I think, are born into and have, I mean, I'm guessing many of you maybe even came here today with that baggage, thinking as well, God is more of an employer. He's hired you. He likes you, but he's hired you to do something, and he's watching over you, just kind of keeping track. And he's going to have that big review at the end, and based on how well you do, you'll get the raise to heaven or the demotion to hell. That's That's the way most of the world operates, honestly. But the Christian God says, I'm not like that. I'm a God who adopts. I'm a God who loves, I'm a God who looks at my people and says they're more like children to me. That's what we get because of what Jesus did on the cross. If you believe that, if you look at the cross and say, I, have, I believe I have forgiveness of sins there. That's what Jesus said in the Bible. I believe it's enough to wash my sins away. Your status changes from enemy to friend and child of God. From slave, from outsider to insider. From one close, that's close to him. A loved, cherished creature before the creator. Isn't that amazing? And they can never be taken away, right? This is where grace comes in too with the metaphor is like, you know, a parental love, it's imperfect in this life. So parents, yes, stop loving the kids here. But in general, it's very unconditional. Like with my kids, there's no, their sin 
grieves me, and when they disobey, it grieves me, but I, in that, I never once for a second stop loving them, not for an instant. So that, that both things are happening. It's the same, same with God. We've grieved him, but he stayed committed to us, and he's come into the world to rescue us from something and all along loving us. So I want to make sure you're hearing this today. This is the gospel right here. The gospel says God is a, like a father to you. God is like a friend and a brother. He's family. He treats you as a child, not as an employer. So if that's a shift you have to make today, I'd say no matter, in light of everything else i got to say today, that's the one you should make. And that, that's the most important thing right there. View God in a right manner. He is like a father to you. He loves you and has adopted you and he's expressed that to you on, on the cross. That's the first thing, encouragement. The second thing is repentance or challenge, or offense, or turning from the old to the new. Look at Luke's spin on this in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he just kind of hangs that out there, right? And hating here, uh, to be clear, is a Semitic idea, uh, meaning love less. So you know, if we anglicize this too much in our idea of hating, uh, it, we, we miss the point. not saying hate, hate, but he is saying w- when you prioritize me, uh, it, it, will look a lot, it will look to the world, to your family, as though Jesus is more important, that he actually is your true family, and that's a good thing. That will be offensive for a lot of your family members to hear. Uh, you might be hated by them for it and ridiculed and, out, and a bit of an outcast. Some of you I know are going through this. You've told me about it. There's a lot of that going on here. Your parents aren't where you are spiritually, and you're treating the church more as your family than they are, which you should, a la this passage and many others, uh, but you're, you're getting a lot of persecution for that. And, you know, and if that's you, I know some of you are, uh, if there's others of you I don't know, we don't know, about be encouraged. You're on the right path. Jesus is more important than your parents. He's more important than affirmation by your, by your earthly parents. It's not saying don't love them, don't spend time with them. It's not saying that. He's just saying, value and prioritize Jesus and the gospel and his people, the church, over absolutely everything. And that's something I want to make sure you guys are hearing to here as well. It's a little bit less clear in today's passage, but it is clear biblically. Jesus' family, uh, and if that's the case, the church is basically equally family as well. Because if you're among saved people, that's why the Bible talks about other Christians from the perspective of other Christians as brothers and sisters in the Lord all over the place. Family language is just everywhere in the New Testament, and it really does mean it. <laughs> That's one thing I want to make sure is clear, too. We read that, and we think, yeah, because we can look at that and say, well, it's a cute metaphor, Jesus, you know, but we all really know that your true family is outside. Mary's out there. Your brothers are out there. But, you know, cute little teaching point. That's great. Or we can say, no, he actually is saying that that isn't really true family out there. I love them, but it's not really what family means, really what family is all about. And so we're confronted by that, right? Do we believe what Jesus is saying here or not? Is he more important? Is, is, the, is, he the ultimate, is the church the ultimate spiritual family, the better family? Or is it not? And then the second layer is what does that mean for our life? Because we might believe that. Yeah, it's tough teaching, I know, but I, I'm there. But then functionally, does that, what does that look like in your life? What does that mean for the way you think and the way you act, the way, where you spend your time? Uh, it actually is, there, there are a few passages in the Bible that are more, more of a call to heavy church involvements on a family level than this idea right here. Because Jesus is saying, this is true. This is reality. Family's great, but it's a shadow. Cling to the reality uh, more, than, more than the shadow. And reorient your life around that as if that were the sun of your solar system, not something else. The Bible then clearly calls us to a church, not back into our family. You, you never see someone saved, then they kind of go back into heavy involvement with their nuclear family and physical family, though that could happen if they're in their church. But you always see people plucked out of something uh, primarily and placed into a new family. That's what God does in the world. He takes people out of the world, the dominion of darkness, and he places them in a family, a gathering of believers for the sake of their perseverance in the faith, growth in that faith, and for worship and, and mission, so they're on communal mission together by spreading the gospel around to more people I haven't heard yet. That's, that's the pattern you see over and over and over again in the, in, the, in the Bible. You never see that former side of being 
saved into a biological family. It's never the case. It's always into the spiritual family. So practically, this could look a number of different ways for us. But in general, if you feel that your main identity is, is physical family, rather than Jesus and his church, something's wrong. If church is something you, every once in a while, I mean, as a Christian, if you're not a Christian, the message for you today is the encouragement side. And it, for Christians as well, obviously. But this is, these are for people. When Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, you know, this is my family, this is a disciple thing. So for a Christian, on this, those that have crossed the line in the sand and come over here and said, I believe in the forgiveness of God through Jesus, there is this call here. If church then is something you sporadically gather with once in a while, but family is clearly the most important thing in your life, then something's wrong. So are you connected at a church level with deep, radical friendships as family, here or elsewhere, wherever your home church is? Do you have friendships on that level, a brotherhood with that local community? Are you worshiping family or Jesus? And the Bible says you can't serve two masters, money or otherwise, like family. And so Practically, you just got to think about this. And it, there could be a, a thousand application points for the number of people that there are here today if you really think about that. But think about that seriously. What does that mean for my calendar even? We live in a culture now today where church for Christians is on the good but not necessary list, I think. It's a good thing, but not necessary in my life. I mean, it's not, I'm not saved by, we're not Catholic here, so I'm not saved by attending Mass. And so, but the pendulum swings too far sometimes as evangelicals, Protestants, and we go over here and saying, well, then we really don't need to attend much at all. And our lives reflect that. We'll go maybe once a month or a few times a year and kind of be involved. But gathering with believers is lower on the priority list than being with physical family, our jobs, and, and, every, and everything else. That's just the way it plays out. And, and so we're constantly called by the Bible, by Jesus, to flip that around and, and reprioritize, reorient our way of thinking to the point where we think, I'm, I'm called to care for my sister and my parents, how much more than am I called to, pair, to care for my church family? I'm called to visit my physical family, and I do visit them. I love being with them. How much more should I be with my church family? And if there's a need, champion it and respond. That's the idea. So not, not downplaying family, but upplaying the church and saying to the degree that we, we visit and care for the physical family, do that on a higher level with the church. That has to happen. There's no lukewarm, moderate middle ground here. Jesus is saying that just is the case. To be very clear, I am more important. And the church and the mission of the church and salvation from sin is the most important thing in the universe. So he's calling us to that. Part of the, part of the response then is to, is to respond as though that's true. Jonathan Dodson uh, says this on community. Jesus did not die on a bloody cross to gather a loose collection of souls bound for heaven, but to create a new community as the proof of his gospel to the world. I'll just let that hang there and say, uh, live as though that's true. See, there's encouragement and there's offense and challenge here. Let both just hang on your soul and consider them. Encouragement. God has adopted you through his son. He loves you. He's died for your sins. And great challenge as well. Live as though that part of what happened there when you believe that is you were plucked up from the world and placed into a community of believers. You are separated from the world. Yes, we're called to scatter amongst the world as well. It's a different sermon though. But we're all we're called to gather and be among people on a radically deep sacrificial friendship level uh, in a way that even would go beyond uh, what we get in a nuclear family for most of us, if not all of us. That's, what we're, that's, that's the weight and the beauty of a passage like this is uh, what that radical nature of salvation and life just life, uh, church life that we're called to, that paradigm shift. All right, let's move on. That's the first side then, is the redefining of family around Christ and those two main responses, encouragement and repentance uh, from that idea, inside and outside of the house, so to speak, narratively. Second idea gets more specific. It's this idea of doing the will of the Father, or what does Jesus mean when he basically says, if you want to get in in verse 50, if you want to be my family, all those, everyone who does the will of the Father is my brother and sister and, and mother. And to really get at this idea, we have to ask the question, uh, what is the will of the Father, right? If we don't know that answer, the whole thing just goes right over our head. Especially the whole passage really goes over our head because that's what's happening here. People are doing the will of the Father. 
and they're being identified as such. On one level, this is really broad. And so on a big picture theological level, for non-Jews to hear this, to basically hear that whoever does the will of the Father, whoever does the will of God, is now a part of God's family. When I said epoch shifting before, I really meant that. Like it's, it's testament shifting. It's, it's, so the shadow in the Old Testament of being a Jew through bloodline and having Jewish parents and, and all of that and being a person of God through inheritance and so forth, that was never a reality but a shadow. It was always people, Jew or Gentile, who lived by faith that were the ultimate Israel, the ultimate Jew. And so now Christ is really pulling back that veil, getting much more clear to be in the family of God, to be saved, to get into his kingdom, it's for everybody, anyone who does the will of the Father. So for a non-Jew to hear this would have been, wait a minute, you know, right here twice. Did you say what I think you said? That means I can get in, you know. I, what's the will of the Father? I don't know, but I can get in, you know. It's one of those things, one of those moments. For, for a non-Jew to hear that, this would have been, and for a, for a Jew, possibly a bit offensive. But Paul's clear elsewhere in the New Testament, in Romans 2.29, that a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. This has always been the case, but he gets very clear here. To be a Jew or a true Israelite, in other words, a person of God, a child of God, is a matter of the heart, not ethnicity. And that just means, what do you do with God? Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ or not? Are you, are, are you having faith in him or dependence on him or not? Are you, still, are you still rebelling against him? That's where things start to get really broad and why the Bible, in the, in the Old Testament, especially the New, talks in more such cosmic terms rather than uh, national ones because it's, it's for everyone. All right, I want to make sure that was clear. But to go back to our question, what is the will of the Father? The answer broadly uh, comes from John 6.40. As Jesus speaks with the same, same language. For this is the will of my Father, he says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the will of God. For the will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So doing that, doing his will then, is believing and looking on the Son. He says in John 3 elsewhere that the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross, and those who look upon that will be saved. They'll be cured. They'll be healed. So those who look on the Son, God's will is that this happen. And, and then his will for our life is that we respond, that we do what it says here in look on, look on the Son. So lots of grace, right? The will of God is we tend to so quickly get to morality, get to the Ten Commandments, talk about the will of God. God wants me to be a good person. Actually, he doesn't. He wants you to be messy and come to the cross. That's what he wants. Then, yes, to do what is right as a Christian, obviously, but those are motivated by the gospel, not on the front end. His ultimate will for your life is that you look on the Son. That's what he wants. So it, it should, if this is true, think about how that would just radically affect our day. When you think, wake up in the morning, what does God want for my day? We'll think about John 6.40 and related ideas. We'll always be thinking about that. Then, then the related thought will be, the subsequent thought will be, how can I do that? It's, you know, it's, it's going to look a lot like church involvement, reading the scriptures, uh, scripture memorization, prayer. It's just going to look like big picture things that help us focus on communion, gathering with Christians, uh, community groups. It's, it's going to look like heavy involvement in a community where I can be reminded of that every single day of my life until my, until my last breath. That's what God wants for you. That's what the Bible says his will is for you. His will is not that you be a good, please hear that. You aren't. You're evil. Jesus says that. He looks at people and says, you're evil, but I'm a savior. You got to have those two things and hold them in tension. You're not pretty good, and he's saving you. You're really, really, really bad, and he's saving you. See how much glory he gets for that? How much more biblical that sounds anyway? You know, that's the message of the cross. That's his will. So that's the one piece. Uh, I think that we can also look at this passage and even get a, a more clear answer. Uh, this and everything that comes before it in Matthew as well. We just look at what's happening here. I mean, think about this passage. Jesus stretches out his hand to his disciples, and he says, this is my mother and brothers. Then he says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brothers. So if you think about that, the disciples must have been doing the will of the Father to be called a mother and a brother right there, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have called them a mother and a brother. So the disciples then are doing, have been doing the will of the Father. So then the question is, what have the disciples been doing earlier in Matthew? 
What, what's the will of the Father that they've been doing? They're just being with Jesus, right? That's all they're doing is following him around and receiving from him. In other words, the disciples are never once, it's never even insinuated, they're never once called great moral people. The will of the Father is not wrapped up in doing anything. It's resting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The will of the Father is being like the disciples, messy, just messed up, but being called out of darkness and responding to that. That's the will of God for your life. It's something that other religions of the world have never come a billion miles to. There's only one Savior. There's only one Trinity. There's only one God who's come into the world and said, I'm saving you entirely. Not staying up in heaven as an employer and saying, live well. This is, this is unique. This is radical. This is one of a kind. This is unprecedented. This is like nothing that's ever happened or ever will happen again in history. This is what God is. This is the biblical God. So if we use this passage then, that's what we see. The disciples, not as moralists, but as people who just are with Christ by grace, are doing the will of the Father and are labeled as that right in the passage. So we have moved then from vague to specific here. Christ has said, I'm redefining family around myself. It's part of what the kingdom of God is all about. I'm claiming a family. I'm adopting slaves. I'm adopting outcasts. But now we're seeing the how, how he does that. How does he create the family? By saving people from their sins and gathering them to himself. So on our side of things, we just look at the cross and look at the Son, as John 6 says, and respond to the gospel and are with him, like the disciples are here in his ministry, just responding to his call and are with him at his feet, receiving from him as beneficiaries, not as many gods who are called to replicate what he's doing in the world. I think what happens a lot, I've wrestled with this a ton in my life, all of us have, to make sure the ground's level here uh, first. But some of you are probably wrestling with this a little bit more today uh, than others. Uh, Some of us think that we are grandfathered in to God's family by having Jesus, or having uh, Christian parents. Jesus talked a little bit in our homes when we were kids, and we think that we're born into Christianity physically because of that. Or having been to a few church gatherings before and living a relatively moral life, I think I'm pretty much grandfathered into Christ. And, you know, we'll ask for Jesus' attention now and then, kind of like Mary and the brothers did from outside the house, and that's the nature of our spirituality. That just happens all over the place. And for some of you, that's probably the nature of your spirituality today. But what Jesus does is speaks into that and says, no, to be in the family of God is to do the will of the Father, which is to look on the Son and to actually make a choice to believe in him. And to believe, to believe in the empty tomb, to believe in the bloody cross and say, that's where my sins are, are forgiven. And to do that in a church community. That's his will. So we can't, we don't back into the kingdom of God. We aren't born into it. We're all called to make this choice and to cross that line in the sand uh, through faith and through belief and say, I believe it's true. I believe it's sufficient. I believe it's the only way to God and, and to make that. So Christ has been very clear there in the Gospels. You know, it, it's possible to be very, very spiritual, to look very Christian, to associate with miracles, all of that and more, and still be a million miles from Jesus Christ. The people that are distant from Jesus here are good religious people. They're not Satan worshipers. They are children of Satan. Jesus calls them that. They don't know that. They are, you know, by by default, I guess you could say. But uh, they are good religious people uh, in an outward sense. So, we don't, we don't back in. And Christ, Christ is saying here that it's very possible to be spiritual, but to be, it's possible to use the right lingo, even, again, participate in all kinds of cool things God's doing in the church, but still not be in the house with him, you know, at his feet. So, so hear that. Some of you are still outside the house. You thought you were in because you were kind of grandfathered in by somehow being a part of the church before, somehow knowing a couple of things about the Bible, by being like Mary and his brothers, kind of. But you're not really in the house yet. To get in is to enter by the cross. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. It's the only way in. But it's by grace. Be encouraged. Just enter. Just go in through faith. Don't wait. Uh, but go in and make that choice today. That he is it. You've got to do it. Christ called, Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing. So you're hearing the gospel right now, and the call is to make that decision to repent and believe that the cross really happened, and it's enough. It's enough for me. Two things then in conclusion, uh, again, my encouragement for you guys one last time is to put yourself inside and outside of the house. 
wherever you are spiritually, and it gets healthy. And so, in other words, to be encouraged and to be challenged. So, I just want to recap those two things. So, first of all, just be encouraged. John 6.40 is true. It's his ultimate will for your life. He adopts you. He loves you. That's the sign of Jonah right there in John 6.40. Jesus is going to spend three days and three nights in the tomb, and he does it for you. And the will of God is that you align with it and acclimate yourselves in your soul uh, to the culture of that and just believe it. Proverbs 18.24 18, uh, in the Old Testament I like this too. This is Old Testament uh, proverbial literature here. And it just says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Which I like that because it's saying, this is speaking about real life here. It's saying, we actually will have friendships a lot of times that do matter a bit more to us than our, fa- or, than our family. Uh, when we move out of the house or something, and in college or whatever it is. But these friendships that go really, really, really deep. And, and they stick closer than, than our brother or sister or your parents. And I think that what, what's cool about this is that you link this with Matthew eleven nineteen 19, when Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and with Matthew 12. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm the ultimate friend. I'm the ultimate one of those. I'm the ultimate version of that greater friend that's better than your family. Cling to me. Love me. I'm a friend that sticks closer than your family. I will always be that. Family's great, but I'm better. I will stick closer to you. I will never leave your side. I will never be faithless to you. I will always be there fighting the war you can't fight on your side. I've already done it, and I'll do it till your last breath. But your brother and your parents and your family will, ne- will never do that to the uttermost for you. I will, I will stick closer than the most loving of dads and that ultimate friend who is a friend of tax collectors and sinners and wicked people like us. Glory to God. That's who he is, and that's, that's what he's done. So be encouraged in that, and then hear this challenge again prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. Is the gospel the ultimate vow you live your life by? Is he your friend who's closer than you? I mean, functionally, really be honest with yourself. Is that, what does this mean for your life? What does it mean? Uh, How can the church be more of a, a collection of radical, selfless friendships, a brotherhood, a community, a family, rather than just something you attend every once in a while? It's really the only version of church that's biblical anyway. So if we have a different version, it's not really church. It's not really an assembly of God's people, which is what church means, an assembly of the saved saved and redeemed saints of God. So live as though that really is the case. Be a a part of the mission, part of the family. We invite you that. It could be your first Sunday here. We'd love you to be a part of that. Some of you are checking out Christianity. You're in between churches, and that's great. We want to honor where you are there, but the encouragement here is don't linger there too long. Look for a community, but put down roots somewhere. It's, it's what God wants for your life. He wants you to be saved in, in a community where that's really, really valued and communicated every single week because we just forget and we have bad priorities all the time as people. And so what the gospel does and church does is reflip it around. It puts, so we say, oh, that's right. Christ really, Christ really is worth it. He really does matter the most. He really is closer than all of our loved ones combined in this life and he's worthy of praise for it. So let's pray together here and uh, we'll close. God, thanks for today. Thanks for the gospel of grace. Thanks for your love for us. Uh, Bless us now as we respond in worship. Thank you that the scriptures say you are closer than a brother. You've adopted us into your family, and you've called us to even something greater. Uh, Convict us of sin, and we just pray for your help in that. In Christ's name, uh, amen.